Hey, everybody. Welcome into the back room. I'm Andy Ostroy. Very excited for our conversation today with Zerlina Maxwell. We will get to Zerlina shortly. But first, let's start with our one big thing this week. And guess what? Is it Trump? It's not Trump. What? Well, indirectly it is. <laughs> but it's, uh, well, it's it's the impeachment. Mm. And I'm not talking, it's the impeachment of... Wait, many- is he being impeached a third time? No, it's the oh. impeachment, of, impeachment of what many people are calling the most corrupt president in history. And no, I'm not talking about Donald Trump. I'm talking about Joe Biden. Oh, yes, that. That impeachment. Well, you probably have to be living under a rock by now not to know that uh, Republicans and Kevin McCarthy and Marjorie Taylor Greene, they are opening up an impeachment inquiry into the massive criminality, which, by the way, there's not an ounce of evidence of, of President Biden and the Biden crime family. Now, this is so important, so important that they have chosen to completely neglect the twice impeached, four times indicted, uh, brought up on 91 felony charges, actual criminal, actual head of an actual crime family, because what's happening with Biden is just so much more important and and a so much greater threat to America. Oh, that's pretty clear that uh, that Kevin McCarthy really has no control over Congress, and it's Matt Gates, and that's that's who's running things is that crowd. Well, Matt Gates and Marjorie Taylor Greene and what I and others call the crazy caucus. You know, look, M- M- McCarthy's dream in life was to be House Speaker back in January when it looked like he wasn't going to be. And they had to have those, I don't know, 15, 16, 18 votes or whatever it was. He cut a backroom deal, which we still don't know what's in it. In fact, Matt Gates, who cut the deal, was on with Ari Melber the other night and he couldn't even produce a copy of the document. So he can't even discuss what's in it. We don't know what's in it, what was promised, but apparently people are pissed off at Kevin McCarthy and they're demanding that he open this impe- this, this impeachment inquiry. And I'm going to want to talk about the hypocrisy of all this in a second, but it is such a scam. And so on the one hand, you have McCarthy, who's, who's got four votes uh, majority in his in his house in his uh, leadership, um, you have the motion to vacate hanging over his head. You have Matt Gates who is publicly sparring with him now uh, because he believes McCarthy reneged on this January deal. You have Marjorie Taylor Greene who's saying, "If you don't impeach Biden, I'm not voting to keep the government open." I mean, it, it's a fucking clown show. You know, this is what happens when you choose uh, not to have policy ideas that you've been working on, when you choose to not govern. This is what you do. You deflect. You make sure that the American people, um, you know, this is in the interest of politics versus, you know, protecting the rights and things that we should be providing to our constituents. Yeah. I mean, the impeachment in this country is reserved for high crimes and misdemeanors. It is reserved for the most egregious violations of a president's oath or any politician's oath or, or judge. They could be impeached too. And for it to be used as, to your point, as a political weapon, it's just outrageously offensive. And, and a a shattering of of a of a very important norm and boundary in this country. You just don't fucking impeach a president because A, you lost, or B, you don't like his policies, or C, you're trying to protect your guy. It, it it's just what does impeachment mean anymore if these guys just use it as a political weapon? Well, this is exactly what Donald Trump wanted you had a dinner with marjorie taylor green where they talked about halibut mm-hmm. and whatnot and now this is where we're at and uh, there's really no surprise it's what what's interesting is that kevin mccarthy just a week earlier said we'll have to have a vote on impeachment which of course makes some sense but then when he realized he would never get that vote and then uh, the crazies in the party were like no you got to do this because of the secret three-page agreement they had in order to allow him to be speaker which apparently matt gates 
his friend has it, but he doesn't have it and can't find it. Right. Uh, because three pages is very hard to locate. We can only assume that in those three pages, there's probably some parts that are so insane they don't want it to be public. <laughs> That's so true. Yeah, well, the gist of it, I mean, I, I'll summarize without even seeing it. The gist of it is, okay, we'll vote to make you House Speaker, Kev, but after that, you do whatever the fuck we want, mm -hmm. or one of us, because that's all it will take, mm -hmm. one of us will file a motion to vacate and you're out of your speakership. Right, and back in May, um, actually, Kevin McCarthy did an adult thing for once, and he worked with Biden to raise the debt ceiling and the continuing resolution so that they would go through fiscal year 2024 without having, you know, shutting down the government 18 times over. Mm -hmm. But that was a bridge too far for the crazies in the party. So now this is what they need. And they're going to shut down the government probably too. And then jumping on that, I think you're right. I think the government will shut down. It's going to be Joe Biden's fault. Right. Well, That's how it's going it's to all... be spun. And and and. I don't understand how that works. Well, it's all Joe Biden's fault. Republicans have not done a great job at winning the past few years, but where they have won often is in shaping a narrative, in defining people, in defining situations. And the media, as always, just jumps on that worm and then dangles on the hook, and that's it. It's infuriating. It is totally infuriating. And the hypocrisy of it all is so infuriating. Look. I could stand here as a Democrat and say, I want Joe Biden, Hunter Biden, Jill Biden, any Biden, any Democrat to be prosecuted and imprisoned if they've committed crimes. I don't care who they are. Same goes for Trump and his family. But when the other side completely, willfully chooses to just completely ignore the Constitution, the rule of law, and the criminality of Donald Trump, and his kids, and Jared Kushner, and all the ethical violations and laws that they've breached and broken, and just harp on Biden. That's where the credibility is zero. That's where it's clear it's political. And to use, and to use the government, I mean, this is the part that just kills me. It's like, hey guys, let's weaponize the government against the Bidens. But what we're going to do is we're just going to create this fucking awesome campaign where we're accusing them of right. weaponizing against us. Right. And we'll all get caught up in this 24-7 fucking debate about how Joe Biden is using the blah, 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 blah. And then we'll just do the exact same fucking thing and nobody will notice. That's what they do over and over and over again. Do it and accuse the other side of doing it. It's, it's a winning strategy for them in many ways. So why not stick to it if you don't have any moral compass? Mm-hmm. But the, the other thing that gets me is like people like us can loathe Mitch McConnell, but we can also respect his long game. He's always had a long game. Of undermining the government? Whatever. It's always been a long game, <laughs> and he's played within certain boundaries. True. He's just been a snaky politician. But what I don't understand is all of this is a short game. It does not do anything for them in a general election, as we've uh, seen. I, I I'm not 100% convinced of that. Well, just, I'm talking about to date. To date, none of this shit, and especially the Hunter Biden stuff, you know, they, they com consistently underestimate the mood of the country. There isn't a family in this country that isn't dealing with addiction, that isn't dealing with somebody who is suffering and to attack hunter biden the way they do and attack joe biden for it that to me is going to backfire like all of this shit the impeachment stuff there isn't a suburban mom who's going you know i hated these fuckers in 2020 but now that they're going after joe biden for absolutely nothing they got my vote when gas prices happening when gas prices are high and food prices are high and you're at the supermarket <clears throat> and in the back of your mind you're like you know Screw, screw all these righteous elitist people talking about the government, the the you know what's right, January six. All this is nonsense. No, <laughs> I just I think that I think you're underestimating. No, I, I I'm not at all. Okay. I'm not at all because, because this we, is we this just is... had an election in 2022. Republicans were supposed to pick up 40 to 60 seats in the House. They got four, and that's because 
inflation has come down. It's come down from nine percent to three percent. So people and prices are, are going back up. Yeah, but I, I, I think I, I don't think that they punish a president for that. Inshallah. You know? In Inshallah. Um, but I'm just saying that up until this day, mm-hmm. all of this shit that they pull has not benefited them. This the at the polls, the support, the the fealty to Trump gets gets the, the you know he's very successful when it comes to chalking up wins in the primaries, but it's the exact opposite when it comes to uh, the general. I it's love great. that you're such an optimist. It's great when you get Trump's nomination in the primary, and it's the kiss of fucking death <laughs> when you go up against your Democrat opponent in the general. But. You know, that's happened in uh, 2022. It remains to be seen in 2024 what happens, because right now what they're doing is probably going to be very effective at sort of dampening the impact of Trump's convictions, which are probably going to happen, certainly his indictments, which have already happened. And if they can muddy the waters and you have independents who say, oh, they're both, you know, a pox on both their houses because they're both so corrupt. So, you know, I'll vote for the one where my eggs were less expensive. Let's keep in mind, Hunter Biden is not running for president. His dad is. And by the time that election comes along, as good as we're sitting here, we know that there's not going to be one indictment, one conviction, one shred of evidence against Joe Biden. I could pretty much guarantee you that. And I'm sorry, but your fucking son was a drug addict and bought a gun. Ain't moving the soccer moms, the independents, the, the suburban people back to Trump. Going back to what you Boom. said. Boom. <laughs> <laughs> going back to what you said about evidence, they don't need evidence. All they're going to do is have hearing after hearing, and they're going to ask the White House for things that the White House will never produce, and they will make giant Who watches heads. those hearings, though? Do you think the majority of voters watch those hearings? It doesn't matter. It's on Fox News. It's going to be spun. It's going to be everywhere. You know, know, evidence was withheld. Boom. (laughs) No, are you throwing? As soon as they don't give something. Drop the mic. Are you throwing my arrogance back in my face? (laughs) Benghazi lasted four years, that investigation. Of course, there was no evidence of anything wrong because it was nonsense from the beginning. But many people will argue, I think, correctly that... Uh, Hillary Clinton may have been damaged beyond repair because of that, among other things. Well, I, I would agree with you on some level that it was a distraction, but I think you take jo- James Comey out of that picture in the last couple of weeks and you got a Hillary Clinton victory. Pizza I don't, I don't think what you're referring Pizzagate. to. You know, the, the other thing is people have a short memory. You got you to understand most Americans are not very plugged into politics. And so, the, and they also have very short memories. And so- I can guarantee you the Hunter Biden thing, it's going to come and go quickly. And all that's going to be, and by the way, again, speaking of hypocrisy, prosecutor after prosecutor after prosecutor that's been on TV has said, I've never seen indictments for this kind of stuff. If his name wasn't Biden, it wouldn't happen. And so what we are talking about is an addict who lied about a, a gun purchase, which by the way, if his name was Eric Trump, the fucking right wing would be going ballistic as making this a a 2A issue and Eric would be a Second Amendment hero. And this is where we all agree. I mean, the three of us. Boom. (laughs) I mean, wait, wait, wait. So the the hypocrisy uh, of it is, is stunning in itself. But a year from now, you're you're, going to be looking at Hunter Biden Way, 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 way back in the rearview mirror. And again, he's not running for president. I don't think we'll be looking at it in the rearview mirror because there will be hearing after hearing after hearing. And he'll probably be charged for some tax problems as well. So this will drag on for months and months and months. And of course, there's incredible hypocrisy because George Santos, who's in the House of Representatives, was indicted on 13 counts, including literally lying on his disclosure forms to the House of Representatives, and they don't seem to care about that. And I'd like to also say that my confidence is with Democratic messaging, Democrat with a big D. Mm -hmm. And I think that they'll be able to say something to the effect that when Marjorie Taylor Greene says that she wants to go after every single one of them and use the Department of Justice to prosecute them, 
I think the Democrats have a lot that they can use to persuade the court of opinion of the American people that um, this isn't right. Yeah. I just think they have to be really targeted and clear and consistent, just like the Republicans. Yeah, and they're going to use Trump's own words. I, in this Megyn Kelly interview he did this week, she asked him, if you were be to become president again, would you go after Democrats the way they're coming after you? Would you prosecute? Would you impeach? Would you? And he goes, well, yeah, because of what was done to me, that it's being done now. So he's admitting that this impeachment of Biden and all of it is just a sham. Okay, so that brings us to our winners and losers. First, I'd like to say Shana Tova to all, all the people who are listening today. And, um, and a Shania Twain to you. And a Shania Twain to you, Andy. <laughs> and, and I'm wishing everyone a sweet new year. My winner... Senator Mitt Romney, the grandfather of Obamacare, will be walking away at the end of his term. Thank you, Senator, for your service to our country. My loser, Dreamers. A federal judge again rejected DACA that has shielded hundreds of thousands of undocumented young adults from deportation, saying that it remained unlawful even after recent changes. I'm going to go ditto on Mitt Romney because I couldn't find many winners this week. And uh, although I don't like the way he treats his dog, I will definitely <laughs> say that seeing Mitt Romney unplugged is a good thing. My loser is the Wisconsin Republicans who are attempting to illegally fire Wisconsin's election administrator, Megan Wolf, without any cause at all. And this is just a continuation of their anti-democratic views. My winner, the Pennsylvania State Police for capturing armed escaped murderer Danilo Cavalcante. Because it's always a good thing when an escaped murderer is captured. My loser, Aaron Rodgers, New York Jets quarterback. I was at that game, and the guy goes down with a ruptured Achilles after like four plays. All right, let's get to Zerlina Maxwell. She is a senior director of progressive programming for Sirius XM. She is the host of Mornings with Zerlina on Sirius XM Channel 127 and hosted Zerlina on MSNBC on Peacock TV for two seasons. She's the author of the book, The End of White Politics, How to Heal Our Liberal Divide. She was an MSNBC political analyst for a decade. She's worked on both Barack Obama's 2008 and Hillary Clinton's 2016 presidential campaigns. She's also a keynote speaker and writer and has written for numerous national publications on subjects including national politics, policy and culture issues, including race, feminism, domestic violence, sexual assault, victim blaming, and gender inequality. Zerlino, welcome into the back room. Thank you so much for having me. So you've been around for a while, but I think it would be interesting to get a sense of who you are, where you came from, your background, your childhood. Tell us about little Zerlino. Where did you grow up and what, huh. kind, of, what kind of kid were you? Oh, I was very curious. Uh, my nickname as a child was Little Miss Question, which I, I find very uh, appropriate. Um, in hindsight, my dad gave me that nickname as a child because I just wouldn't shut up. I was always asking where we're going, what we're doing. Why is that person doing that? What are they wearing? Why are they, you know, like everything about everything I was asking about it. Um, and I feel like that serves me well in a in a profession now where my job is to ask people questions. Um, so I was very curious as a child, but also very brave um as a small i mean i was born in new york but grew up mostly in new jersey and my first sport was gymnastics and that was because i used to climb on everything <laughs> and jump off and my parents were like she's gonna die so they put me in gymnastics and i feel like everything i am today i i i can usually link it back to something i learned with that being my very first sport because i i was very serious about it and competitive until I was 15. So little Zerlina was curious, but also quite brave. Like I somehow acquired a fear of heights now, but then I, I didn't have any of that. No fear and curiosity. Have you ever skydived or? No. How about roller coasters? I like roller coasters because you're strapped in. There's a difference for me, I think, when I know I can fall versus when I know I'm strapped in and like there's all this, you know, physics and engineering in place to make sure that I'm secure. Um, my friend did ask me a couple months ago, 
like if I wanted to go skydiving and I almost did it like on a whim, but then I was like, maybe that's not necessarily an impulse decision. And then also she was like, I got a Groupon and I was like, I don't know if I want to do skydiving with a Groupon, but I, I'm interested in maybe trying. Well, you might want to pay point. extra. Let's go for the one that's, that's what extra I was thinking. Money. Right. Like I want to pay more and get all the extra. <laughs> the better, the better instructor, not <laughs> yeah, the, the exactly. discount guy. <laughs> Right, exactly. Who just started like two weeks ago, which right, is why right, it's exactly. on Groupon. Um, and little Zerlina, in terms of politics and news, when did she? When did you get a uh, first inkling of all that craziness in the world and, and have it be interesting to you? I feel like it was on my own. My parents didn't steer me any direction either way. I have a very vivid memory of nineteen. 88, which sounds so specific, but I, I'm going to tell you why I remember the date is because I remember arguing with my dad in the kitchen as a child about the fact that he, I mean, he wouldn't mind me saying he was going to vote for George H.W. Bush. Hmm. And I was like, you're not supposed to be doing that. That's not correct. That's you're not supposed to be. And I'm like listing off all the reasons why. But I'm like seven or eight, maybe at that point. So I it was it was not something that my parents told me to think this way or that way. I always had an opinion about it. I think that's because number one, my mom told me stories about my grandfather who marched in Selma along with my mom's sister, my mom's older sister, when she was seventeen only. And so I just had, I don't know, I feel like it was in my blood in a way. It's in my DNA to care. It's in my DNA to have thoughts about it also and, and not be quiet about things that I see going on in the world that I don't think should be going that way. Um, so as a seven-year-old child, I was very vocal. I remember actually even in like second grade telling my classmates in line for school to tell their parents not to vote for George W. or H.W. Bush. Like, I, think, I remember telling the kids that. I think that's pretty amazing that as a seven-year-old, you were pretty pretty much advocating for Mike Dukakis. I know. It's like, what do I know? <laughs> then he put and that helmet I, on. I'm he like, put that helmet on and it just rocked right. your world, right? I, I don't know. I don't know what it was. I, it was just, I knew that, I think it's because I watched a lot of news. I've always been like a ferocious news consumer. So I feel like I was sitting there as a child and I'm sort of like listening. And I feel like one side spoke to me more than the other. And I just like I decided that I was going to tell people to vote for Michael Dukakis. But I don't even know how I learned how to say his name. You know what I mean? Like, I, But I was sure that I didn't want anybody voting for George H.W. Bush. I told everyone that, including my parents. And I and they're like, what are you talking to? You know, imagine a little child telling you who to vote for. Wouldn't it be that great? That was what was happening in our kitchen. Wouldn't it be smart <laughs> if politicians just literally started grooming children at a young age to into politics? It's just like right. with subtleties, like you know, in their speeches, be like, yo, and, oh, and if I become president, no more bedtimes, no more bedtimes, and homework gone, and then just plant these yep. seeds, and then all of a sudden the kid is eighteen, is like. Democrats, no more homework, no bedtime. Right, right, right. Or pot. <laughs> that would actually be pot, a very you know, funny pot for long-term plan. Yes. That would be a funny long-term plan. Yeah, just plan I, I actually, there is a really funny um, joke on TikTok about Gen X because Gen X, um, as you know, is the, they're the parents of the Gen Zs. And Gen Z is quite radical and mm -hmm. active. And Gen Z was very much a stifled sort of the they were like the latchkey kid generation they didn't have technology the way the millennials did and so you know they were sort of they got the short end of the stick in a lot of ways Gen mm -hmm. X. so they they but the joke is that they just waited <laughs> until they like birthed the army <laughs> you know that was it. and so um i love that joke on tiktok because i think um it demonstrates that you know with each generation we can influence. We can influence the kids and raise them up. Yeah, to want totally. to change the world. Everything starts at home. Um, yeah. And so, what the things you were saying before about your interest in news and politics and wanting to do right by the world—that what led you to law school? Yes, um, I. There was a there was a moment when I was watching Eyes on the Prize as a kid, when I realized that the people that were 
So the, the activists were marching, um, people were organizing, and then the lawyers went to court. Like, yeah. I was like, wait, you know, we're focusing a lot on Martin Luther King, and obviously this, all of this works together. But one of the critical pieces was Thurgood Marshall and um, the lawyers who argued these monumental constitutional law cases. And I, I realized that as a child, I was like, wait, that there's power there. Um, and in some ways, I feel like this is my advice for any of the aspiring lawyers out there. You should try to figure out before you attend law school what type of law you want to practice. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you should answer, try to answer that question. Even just give yourself three options before you go. Don't go to law school because you always wanted to go or like you always wanted to be a lawyer in an abstract way. You want to know what you're going to do with the degree. So that's just like the pro tip. But for me, it was seeing the power of the lawyers, the civil rights attorneys who were going in to change the law and make the world more equitable. And I felt really inspired by that. And so I knew even if I didn't go on to become one of them and work in that same way, the power, whatever they're teaching you in law school has obviously has some power. (laughs) Um, That was something that I recognized as a kid. Mm -hmm. And what made Big Zerlina eventually go, you know, I just, I want, I want media, not law. Well, (laughs) I think it was the Obama campaign in 2008. You know, I had, I started school and took a break to go work on the campaign. And then by the time I went back, I was like, I don't want to be a lawyer. I had worked in many, many law firms at that point. Before law school, I worked in big law. I worked in middle size, medium sized law firms. I worked in small law firms. I never met a happy lawyer, not any in any of my travels. Never met a lawyer that was like, man, I love my job. <laughs> so happy here, especially the big firm. I mean, everybody wants to go to law school and get that big, you know, white shoe firm job, six figures. You think you're living the best life ever. And I was surrounded by miserable, unhappy people. And I realized that even though they were making a lot of money, that's not everything. Like, and I, I reevaluated <laughs> you know, what my passions were. It was like, do I want to do a job where I'm thinking and reading about politics all day, but my job has nothing to do with that? Or in the worst case scenario, it's actually going against some of my sort of values, right? Because I worked in a firm that represents, you know, banks and entities that ideologically, you know, it makes it hard to sleep at night in some in some context, depending upon what firm you're talking about. So for me, it was like, I spent, I was the person that in the law firm, this is during George W. Bush's administration, I was the person that like all the lawyers who cared about politics, they would like swing by my office just to chat. You know, they're like, oh, I'm going to go talk to Zelina about what's going on. You know, the liberal, some of the conservative lawyers, liberal lawyers, didn't matter where they fell on the spectrum, but they knew like I was the go-to person. Mm -hmm. Um, And one of the things I realized then is that this is what I'm spending my time thinking about, caring about while I'm here doing this other job. And my dad always said growing up that if you make your job the thing that you're passionate about and that you're doing anyway, it will never feel like work. And I'm not saying my job now doesn't feel like work, but I probably will be paying attention to the, all the same things anyway, so I might as well get paid mm-hmm. um, is how I look at it. So I ended up in media in large part because it's what I was already paying attention to. It was what I was already passionate about. And I realized similarly to as a kid, when I recognized the power of the law, the media has enormous power to shape what we think about what is happening in the world. And for me, I was watching infuriating coverage of all types of events throughout the course of my my youth and also in college, the Iraq war comes to mind. Um, to the point where I was like, I want to go disrupt that a little bit. Mm -hmm. (laughs) I want to go sit there on the set with those people and debate them because they're not making sense and, or their argument isn't correct. And here are the three reasons why. And so I basically decided I can go do that. Like I was watching it all the time and I was like, I'm going to go do that Mm -hmm. with them. But yours is definitely a strong, important voice and for a lot of reasons. And you've also been very outspoken and with regard to like Me Too issues. And I didn't really know this mm-hmm. until I started doing my homework that you were the victim of sexual assault in college. So Wikipedia is incorrect. Um, I don't know how to change that. 
it, it was not in college. It was after college. Um, but yes, I am the survivor of sexual assault and a large part, part of my work. Um, and what I, I think even outside of politics, what I'm most well known for is talking openly before Me Too, way before Me Too, about not before the Harvey Weinstein iteration of Me Too, but before the nas national conversation of Me Too, um, was sexual assault, rape culture, the way in which we have normalized sexual assault, we blame victims of sexual assault, um, and and just how it's steep, we're steeped in it all the time. It's It's in our culture, we're swimming in this water full of misogyny, sexism, patriarchy. And for me, it was, it, it wasn't, I never thought about like not talking about it because for me, it's not something I feel ashamed about. It's something that happened to me because of somebody else's choice. And for me, not talking about it, not being like, wait a minute, I, I was blamed for my own assault. I don't want that to happen to anybody else. You know, being outspoken about it, that felt like almost like a my destiny. Mm -hmm. Like because I'm I'm able to be clear. One of the things that my manager always says um is that I have the ability to have clarity. And so for me, utilizing that, I was I was able to really create the space for a conversation about rape culture, creating viral hashtags before. Harvey Weinstein's story broke in the New York Times mm -hmm. in 2017, and Me Too took off and trended around the world. It, and because it's been now about five years or so since the issue and the prominent cases exploded into the culture, do you see much change in the things you mentioned, the perceptions, the treatment of women, the, the believability, all the things that were so prominently on everyone's radar then have we slipped back to the way things were? I have so many thoughts on that today specifically because right now on TikTok, there's a trend where women are asking men, sometimes their partners and husbands, how often they think about the Roman Empire. And all the men are like, yeah, I think about that all the time, like maybe three times a week. And women are like, what? what? Why? Why are you thinking about, like, how do you have the capacity to think about that? Um, but I think it actually illustrates the, this deeper point, which is that men have the space to think about the Roman Empire because women are spending all of their time thinking about how not to get kidnapped by men, <laughs> assaulted by men, hurt by men. And so we don't have the time to think about the Roman <laughs> Empire because we're trying to stay alive. Um, maybe they're, maybe that, they're just fantasizing ab about the age of Caligula. That's probably my guess. I mean, that, that, maybe that's it. <laughs> I mean, I, I, it's so funny. It's so fascinating to me because I actually traveled to Rome this year for the first time in my life, you know, visiting all of the places, Coliseum, Vatican, and and learning all of the history, because I, I did formalized tours with like an archaeologist um, going down under the Coliseum and seeing all of the technology that they have literally invented. It's really amazing. Like when you think about all of the things in architecture, even the spacing of the railroad tracks that, you know, you can link back to the Roman Empire. However, I don't think about that ever, like all the ever, unless somebody brings it up. I'm not thinking about it three times a week. <laughs> um, and I think I think the point and how it relates to me too is that I don't realize, I don't think men realized until Me Too trended globally that almost every single person who identifies as a woman has experienced some form of harassment, uh, assault, attempted or completed. Um, and I think that the pervasiveness of the issue, you know, that I think broke through five years ago. That's what broke through. Oh, this is happening to everyone. You know, hashtag me too was everybody. That's why it went viral. Um, and I think that there was a moment where we did make progress because, you know, people did lose their jobs and some people were held accountable, um, even if only temporarily, like Bill Cosby. But also some people were convicted and you know, sentenced to jail in other cases, R. Kelly comes to mind. So yes, there was tangible change after the hashtag trended. However, there's always a backlash when there's progress on one of these cultural issues. And so while there was a lot of progress initially and people were, you know, I think rightfully less inclined to victim blame as sort of the default response, mm -hmm. um, 
I think that shifted around the time of the Johnny Depp Amber Heard case. And I'm not sort of here to argue or debate the merits of each side of that, but I think the coverage, the media coverage, the social, the social media conversation around that case illustrated that we, we had taken a step back in terms of our evolution on this issue, not victim blaming, not, you know, trafficking in open misogyny towards people who have come forward talking about their experiences with abuse. And also, I think one of the more frustrating things is the idea of the perfect victim. And so we had sort of talked about that during Me Too, uh, right? You know, victims of, of assault, they're chosen by the perpetrator. And oftentimes they're chosen because people, they they don't think people will believe that person. Right. Um, and I think that we made progress and and we're living through very much a backlash now. Although I have to say, um, I think it's very important to note that the former president, Donald Trump, was found liable has, um, and likely will have to pay significant, even more money than he was originally, um, the jury originally awarded uh, in the federal aspect of the investigation. So it's important that the former president you know, we all marched in pink hats for a reason. That was because he said on Access Hollywood Safe he, he could do whatever he wanted to a woman. I don't even have to say the, the sort of graphic line. He said he could do whatever he wanted to a woman as long as he's famous. And millions of people rejected that. And he has been found accountable in a court of law, liable uh, for assaulting Eugene Carroll, for raping Eugene Carroll, even though uh, they're trying to act like that's not what it, the Jury right. said well, the, the judge, judge clarified. That's right. The, the judge, judge clarified that. Mm-hmm. So, you know, there's both progress you can point to and the backlash you can point to in the last five years. Yeah, you know, it's interesting because I was way more hopeful during that period than I am now because now to me it's just like I feel about crime. You know, you can commit a crime and go to prison tomorrow and then the next day someone's going to commit the same crime. They don't learn mm-hmm. by your mistakes. It's because certain people are inherently criminal. They're inherently bad. And they do their bad shit regardless of whether someone else who did the same bad shit yesterday was sent to prison for it. Mm -hmm. And so I kind of have come full circle on like, well, that was like a nice little spurt of like, you know, I mean, I remember every day, well, him, he got it. He's going down. Like it was like one by one, Charlie Rose. Like it just was like dominoes. And then it just stopped. And it's like not like the sexual assault went away. It's like, right. it's still happening. But why aren't mm-hmm. these kingpins coming down at the rate and frequency that they were back during those initial years? I think because now they know it's coming. I don't think they expected to be held accountable. And so you sort of saw them caught off guard when that hashtag went viral and you know people started telling their stories. Um, now they sort of, they see it coming. So I, one, I think people are more careful I do. I think people are more careful, not in in that they don't assault or harass people, but just in terms of how they do it so that they don't get caught for it. Um, And that's very unfortunate. So so what I would hope to see is more of the cultural piece of the conversation, because my my thing is, is that whenever I was talking about sexual assault and rape culture, I was never talking about legal accountability. What I my goal is to change the cultural conversation we're having so that there can be legal accountability because there rarely is legal accountability. Ninety, I think it's like 93% of rapers never go to jail ever. So the idea that like we should only be talking about court and jail and the law, that I feel like is too limiting. And there's so many people out there who have been assaulted who will never see a day in court because they don't have any evidence. Uh, to support their allegation is just their word against the other person who's going to deny it because that's what happens. And then, you know, you're left with just your trauma to deal with it with no mechanism for accountability. So the cultural conversation is very important to me, even more so in some contexts than the legal conversation because that is so rare. I mean, I've been following closely what's happening with, Danny Masterson sentencing for 30 years to get 30 years in prison, 32 life 
You can't even ask for parole until after the 30 years for rape. That is so rare. So people need to understand that the fact that that even happened is is actually a significant piece of the story in and of itself. Do you know how much evidence they had to have in order for the sentence to be that significant? So I think we have a lot of work to do in terms of changing the cultural conversation. But I think that we can. Gen Z is way different when it comes to these issues than millennials and the elders. Mm-hmm. What did you so, think of that video that uh, Ashton Kutcher and Mila Kunis put out? I, mean, I want to say for the listeners, Zerlina is rolling I, her eyes right I now. I <laughs> made a face. Yeah, I made a face. Because, um, and and again, I made a face, but also I guess like what I think about it is is related to the fact that I made a face because I was looking so closely. I'm very, I, I a lot of times I watch things on mute. Uh, I watch the news on mute mm. a lot just to, to see facial expressions. I watch, I watched myself on mute a lot when I would do TV just to see what I'm doing with my face without even the other pieces, because it is important sort of as you're presenting yourself in, in a medium like TV, Mm -hmm. care about that kind of thing. So I was looking at their faces and there's this one moment. I don't know why I don't have any speculation or knowledge as to why, but if you watch it closely, there's a moment where Ashton says, Danny's family asked us to write these letters. And we didn't think they would ever come out. Like, we just thought they were for the judge or whatever. Mm-hmm. That's what he's saying. And and uh, Mila's not talking in this portion, but she makes a face. And it's like, it's almost like, I don't know what she's thinking. I don't know what's happening. I don't know the context. I don't know them. But I noticed that. And a lot of, like, body language experts, mm-hmm. you know, people on TikTok are doing that analysis. So what that could possibly mean. But I, you know, I thought, What's troubling about the entire ordeal is that it's it's actually irrelevant. It should be irrelevant that your friend of, you know, however many years is like nice to you and good to these other people. They've just been sentenced for sexually assault, assaulting multiple people, mm-hmm. sentenced 30 years to life. Like they don't need your letter. Right. Who cares about the guy you knew? Right, because you didn't know the full person. Right. The whole point is that you actually didn't really know him. I think you should sit with that. Well, it's like some some women, this always gets me, whenever like Harvey Weinstein or somebody else, they'd be like, (laughs) he never touched me. Well, what is fucking, what does that mean? Like Like Does that mean he didn't rape somebody else because he never touched you? Right. What does that mean? I hate when whenever... You know, men are accused, and this has happened in public, where they put out letters, character letters from other women they did not assault. Right. As if that's supposed to be helpful information. Well, well just the notion or, or the belief by some people that in order to be guilty, you have to be sexually assaulting every woman you've ever encountered in your life. Otherwise, the would, other women are it, not believable. Right. And it doesn't happen that way. The thing, the dynamic is that. The person that is an abuser, textbooks will tell you they are nice and charming and the great guy and the, you know, the active parent and dad. And, you know, they're they're the nice guy. You never think that's how they get away with it, because they're like putting forward a completely false persona and a mask in front of everyone else. And how they are in private is where the allegation comes from. Yeah. Well, it's like if a guy, if a guy, it's like if a guy robs a liquor store. It doesn't matter if like 20 other liquor store owners go, he never robbed my store. Like, right. Like, what, what is that? I, I don't even understand how anyone can even let those words out of their mouth. It's so irrelevant. I want to switch to uh, uh, more fun subjects. Mm-hmm. Uh, this was a pretty exciting summer. We've had Burning Man. We've had Barbie, Beyonce, Beyonce and uh, someone whose name doesn't begin with the letter B, Taylor Swift. So I want to know, Yes. did you go to Burning Man? And no. What do you think of Burning? What do you think <laughs> no, of Burning? No, no, no. I don't do anything. <laughs> no, I would never volunteer. So I have a lot of burn. I have a lot of friends that go to Burning Man. I have a lot of burner friends. However, are they old middle aged would... white guys? No, no, they're not actually. <laughs> oh, good. <laughs> That's actually a good question. But no, no, actually, the 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 people that I know that go to Burning Man are all women of color. Interesting. Random. However, no, I would never voluntarily go outside in the dirt. Mm. Or like if I don't have no, okay. I'm not gonna do that. I'm not really into camping either. You know, I'm not 
I'm not outdoorsy in the, that way. I'm with you. I like like water sports. You know, we talk about skydiving, but I'm not going in the desert on purpose. No, my my idea of camping is like maybe a three star hotel. Right, like a cabin with yes. wa- running, you know, like yeah, bad a pool Wi-Fi. In the back, a bad Wi-Fi. That's camping. Yeah, yeah, yeah. exactly, exactly. Uh, how about Barbie? I'm assuming you saw the film. So, okay, so this I was just talking to my uh, one of my closest friends. I have not seen Barbie, but that's not because I didn't Whoa. want to see it. It's because I am afraid of COVID, so I don't go to a lot of like movies. Although I was gonna go one day, and then I had like right when I was like gonna purchase it. I was reading about like the new surge. So I was like, okay, I'll just wait for it to come on my TV. But it's taking too long. So as soon as it's on there, I'm going to watch. I've seen a million clips. So from as soon Barbie. as COVID know... goes away, I'm going to see Barbie. I know. I was like, <laughs> never going you away. You might be waiting a long but time. I know. I mean, and maybe I'll go this weekend in a mask. You know, I do that. I do many things in masks. I'm still wearing my mask and I have not, knock on wood, had COVID at all. So okay. it's working. How about um, uh, Beyonce yeah. or Tay Tay? And or I, I went to be I, I didn't go to Taylor Swift, although I love her. Mm-hmm. I went to Beyonce mm-hmm. um, and I'm going again <laughs> um, to her last show in New Orleans. So I went here in Washington, D.C. Unfortunately, I randomly chose the second day, which if people are following sort of the tour, that's the day that it was like thunder and lightning. And raining. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so thunder lightning sort of like lock you know the show was late we were in the rain i got all i was in a poncho a whole thing but epic experience and i felt full circle because my dad told me this summer that i was also at diana ross in the rain in 1983 as a one-year-old baby so i was like this is my destiny it was my destiny to be a beyonce in the rain you are destiny's (laughs) child yeah clearly um so now we must address the elephant in the room which is um stray kids You are obsessed. With <laughs> I K- am obsessed with yes. K-pop. Yes, I am. And the Stray Kids in particular, and and maybe even one of them. NCT. I'm more obsessed with NCT than Stray Kids. So the the way the language works, and if any of the Gen Z listeners or K-pop fans are listening, they will understand the language I'm about to use. Um, my ultimate group, my ult group is NCT. Uh, but I love I love Stray Kids, and I just saw them in August in LA. And I've never had so much fun screaming at the top of my lungs at a concert. I am 40, I'm almost 42 years old. I discovered K-pop completely by accident. I clicked on a video on YouTube, a Blackpink video, like when I was really bored in the pandemic and I was out of episodes of Law & Order to watch. And I was like, what is this? And it was so amazing. Like it, so if you grew up watching Michael Jackson or Janet Jackson, that's what K-pop is. It's just a big scale dance performance. Obviously the music is good too. But it's just so epic, and the concerts are incredible. And I, I, I'm very, you know, I, I mentioned I my first sport was gymnastics. There's something about like cho- choreography mm. that just like makes me joy, feel joy deep down. Um, so I, so Stray Kids was at the VMAs, and I, I mean, I posted sort of the video I took, and I didn't even like take that video because I was gonna post it anywhere. But it was just so funny because it was just literally how I very much re- was. Like I just that's how. First of all, that's how I am at a concert. Like I am, I'm, I don't care. Like I'm not shy. I am loud and yelling and jumping and screaming and trying to sing in Korean, but not very successfully usually. Um, but Stray Kids is just a source of joy. And I think there's a mis, there's a misperception that the only people who like K-pop are young. Yeah, that's a lot of people that are young, but I just went to a convention in Los Angeles and I would say I was like median age, you know, at 42. There were people there in their 70s, 60s and 70s, 50s, 60s and 70s, because the music is that good. The music is good and the performances are Michael and Janet Jackson. Mm-hmm. I know. So I, I, have, like I that, have every BTS album. Oh. No, I don't. I'm love lying. I'm lying. BTS. Oh, you don't? Okay. I don't. I, but maybe. <laughs> here's the thing. I interviewed Senator Maisie Hirono this week. I know. And one of the fun facts about her is that she is the biggest BTS fan in the Congress. That's crazy. And she's like, she knew deep cuts. Mm-hmm. She was not just, you know, saying I like BTS. She was like, this is my favorite song. Uh, this is my, her bias. She was like, my bias is Jungkook. Um, my bias is also Jungkook. Um, and I think it's just a source of joy. Look, mm-hmm. we're li- we just lived through, still knock on one, living through a global pandemic. Mm-hmm. Climate change is 
the crisis we're seeing seeing every day uh democracy teetering i needed a source of joy so that's what k-pop is for me maybe we can send some k-pop albums to jim jordan because it seems like maybe he might need a little joy in his life um he needs some joy (laughs) so you you are very active on tiktok i'm a fan of your videos and i want to say they're funny they're sarcastic they're obviously laced with a lot of righteous indignation they're self-deprecating which is always very charming but they're also kind of performative you know when we were talking about a little zerlina or even big zerlina mm-hmm. was there any ever any acting pursuits along the way because you have a little no, bit of an actor I in think, you i know well no but my mom wanted to be an actor an actress. She like moved to New York City in her twenties. She wanted to be an actress. So my mom's like, I mean, she passed away. So my my late mother, um, rest in peace, rest in power. Um, but she she moved to New York, wanted to be an actress. She's always she could you know she was a great singer. She always she was very dramatic. So I was raised by like a very stoic, serious, although very sarcastic and funny dad, with a mom that was like, oh my god, you know, like all the time. So I think it rubbed off, and I'm I am a little I'd say dramatic, um, but I also I don't know like I think that TikTok is is a is a platform that I was I'm really intentional about what I post there, and I've been really intentional about trying to sort of tap into the other side of my brain because I'm always sort of using one side of my brain and very like analytical, and I think TikTok allows me to be more creative, and I've. I have been told by most people that I meet that I am funny. Mm-hmm. I don't know, like, if that's true. But You're people funny. say that. I, so, I, I did okay. stand-up comedy <laughs> for a while. I, I, so I, I kind of have a high bar of funny. Here. I, I'll tell you you're funny. You are funny. People people say that. They're like, you are, You should be a stand-up comedian. And I don't know that I have the courage to do that. So I think TikTok is like a nice little medium space where I can sort of test out the funny things that I'm thinking that people do laugh at when I tell them in real life. So I just recreate that because I think that it allow. I mean, I think the cable news version of Zerlina is not really me. It's it's not me. There's a filter between me and the audience. There's a pile of makeup on my face. There's, you know, the filter of sort of the cable news system that, you know, only allows you to go so far when talking about certain things or being a certain way. And so I like TikTok for the freedom that it allows me to express myself and be funny and actually show my personality. Because one of the things my mom always said is like, you live one time on this, this earth. And she always used to like get on me for being too serious. She's like, you are too serious. You need to loosen, lighten up. You've achieved that. You definitely yeah. achieved that. But so let, you mentioned <laughs> uh, uh, cable news. I was one of many people disappointed when your your show got canceled. Mm-hmm. Why was it canceled? Uh, I I don't you know I don't know insights into to any of the inner workings. Um, you know I think with with TV it's ratings mm-hmm. and audience size, and so uh, that's usually the reason why certain shows don't continue on. Um, but what I will say is that. I think the media landscape is changing right now in real time. And one of the reasons why I say that is because nobody nobody has cable, you know, in the same way they used to. Uh, people are not watching cable news the way they used to. People are not consuming TV and news the way they used to. Everything is streaming. Um, or, for example, in my own life, as soon as I got on TikTok and I was just really squat. I mean, before I posted one video, I was just trying to see what it is. That's why I feel like my videos sort of are are they're gaining traction already because I'm not showing up as like cables or Lena. I'm showing up as like, oh, I know what this app is. I understand the inside jokes here mm-hmm. and the conversations that are happening on this app. And so I'm showing up and like jumping into the public square where TikTok is already are already is, whereas cable news is feels stale and behind and the audience the data shows this is not me saying making it up they're old Mm. they're my dad's age you know not that he looks young but he's 67 years old 
And that's basically the age demographic that watches cable news. Mm -hmm. And I think that's changing. I think we're we're getting to a place in the media landscape where we're taking away the filter. I don't need the filter between me and the audience. I can talk directly to them. And that's what TikTok allows me to do. That's what YouTube allows people to do. Mm-hmm. And I think that that's where the media is headed. Let's talk about another subject I know is very important to you, and that is racism in America today. Mm-hmm. To me, it seems like we're at one of the worst places, worst points in history that we've ever been in because all the quiet shit is now said out loud. You have pretty much KKK-like crap happening in the Tennessee mm-hmm. State House. You know, let's just kick out the two black guys and keep the white lady. Mm-hmm. Like, it, It's no more like going into a field in the middle of the night wearing a robe and a hood and burning a cross. Now it's like, let's just do it inside the chambers of Congress and right. everywhere else. Right. Do you feel that way? I do. Uh, during the 2016 campaign, I had several colleagues on a, on the campaign for Hillary Clinton. I worked in the communications department who were black and Latino, API, and we used to have meetings by ourselves, uh, you know, on our own to try to figure out the way we were going to make the case for how urgent the situation was in terms of Donald Trump's normalization of racism and the fact that he was making it fine to be openly racist again out in public loud and proud about it Mm -hmm. without any consequences like that that was fine again and i think in 2016 we recognized it um we talked about it when he hired steve bannon if you go back on youtube and you look up hillary clinton reno nevada she gave a speech about the alt-right the breitbart's of the world and the white supremacist movement hate movement i think is what she called it at the time. Um, and we, we've, we're just living through the consequences of the normalization of racism. And that's what January 6th was, a manifestation. There's no, it's not a surprise that that happened. It was, it's the culmination of many years of Donald Trump normalizing racism, but also America not being able to confront its own history. And do you agree with me when I say that I believe racism is at the root of Trumpism, that MAGA, make America great again, really just means make America white again. And that's all that these people are seeing and hearing and voting for, period. Yes, I do. And even if you are voting for Trump or Republicans and you don't necessarily wake up with that at the top of your own mind, what I always say to people who who try to say, well, just because you voted for Trump doesn't make you racist, or I'm not racist just because I voted for Trump. And I say, I don't really know what's in your heart. And I don't actually care what is in your heart, right? <laughs> I only care about your behavior and how that impacts me and people who look like me. So what you did, what you did is tolerate racism mm-hmm. to the point that it was not a deal breaker in who you supported. And the person you support, not only is explicitly using racist rhetoric, they are also pushing and supporting racist, harmful policies that actually hurt communities of color. So if supporting that doesn't make you racist, I don't know what does. Like, for me, it's like, I don't know, there's no other word to use. I ended a 30-year relationship. I had a friend who, we were friends for 30 years. He was always a Republican. You know, we disagreed on abortion and taxes and whatever, but... It, the relationship ended because we had a conversation where I literally said that to him. Like, I, I don't, I can't be friends with someone who wants to save on taxes so much that they support someone who persecutes uh, other yeah. people. Yeah. That was it. It is kind of, you know, when you hear people say, oh, people are voting for Trump because of economic reasons, I just, that's bullshit. It's just all it's- racism. The so media obvious. has a role to play, too, in in trying to frame it as economic anxiety, mm-hmm. too. I mean, they're they're at fault in trying to call in anything else. And I think the reason they do that, I never did that. But the reason why some folks in the media do that is because they don't want to call. I mean, let's be honest. The majority of the people who work in the media and write these stories, they are white. 
and their entire social friend family mm -hmm. group is also white because the Absolutely. data shows that most white people do not have any friends or close associates who are not also white. Mm -hmm. And like the caveat there is like a lot of, there are a lot of white Americans I hear from them on my show, they'll call in, um, who will say like, you know, my friend, I do have a black friend and I'm like, do they work for you? And then usually that, you know, that's usually the first only question you have to ask. The answer is usually yes. And then it's like, that's not your friend. <laughs> like, you know, that's your employee that you're friendly with. And that's great that you treat them well and you like them as a person. But that's not your friend. And they don't that the power dynamic is not correct. So, again, it's like the majority of folks in this country who are who are white. You know, I think the question for you is think about your friend group. Think about what experiences and lived experiences you're exposed to because we see this with things outside of race if you're you know if you have a family member or a close family friend or a friend who is you know in the lgbtq plus community you're more empathetic you're more supportive of gay rights i mean part of it is is you you're just not interacting <laughs> with any black people mm -hmm. um but then also you know you don't i just don't buy the argument that Oh, well, I just like tax cuts. Or like I don't you I should not be held accountable for the harm caused by the politicians I support. Mm -hmm. Like it, you know, I, I think child separation during the Trump administration is one moment where I was like, I mean, if you guys still support him after this, then you there want, isn't you, you can't, want him. You, I mean that's Yeah, you can't stand there and say mm -hmm. like, Oh, I'm not rich. You know, this has nothing to do with race. Like, it does. We're not stupid. And I refuse to believe that, you know, many members in the media are either. They're not. What, they're, what, what they feel uncomfortable doing is labeling people racist because some of the people who believe some of these things are people they like. And they don't, wanna, they, sure. they don't want to alienate those people. People they um, play golf with. You know, this is right, exactly. a shock, but oh, white you know, people but play John's a lot of a golf. Nice guy. You know, he's a nice guy, yeah, but, you know, nice. he's not nice. Right. Like, you, like, who you support politically, that I I believe your your vote, I mean, it's your power, it's your voice, but it's also a value. It's like, it's a vote for your value. Yes. Set, you, you, get, right? you don't get to separate <laughs> that out. It's like, who <laughs> just because you don't put kids in cages doesn't mean you're not, if you support Trump, then you are Trump. Plain and simple. Yeah. Um, my, my last question to you, yeah. which is probably one that you don't get asked often, or maybe ever, uh, but uh, it is a window into the soul. I think music is a big window into one's soul. So give me your top five musical artists of all time. Oh, it's hard. Uh, Stray Kids. All time? That's not, they're not going to go all time. They just started. Um, all time, my favorite singer is Mariah Carey. That I mean, you, that's not a surprise because I I just really like pop music, sure. um, an R and B. Uh, so Mariah Carey is my favorite singer of all time. Michael Jackson. My cat is my named Michael Jackson. Wow, my dog so is I named much... my dog is named Ringo. Look at that. Oh, that's <laughs> they should get together and jam. <laughs> that's so good. <laughs> I mean, I just call him Michael. So full disclosure, at this point, like uh -huh. I just call him Michael. It's been many, many years. He's like he's an older cat, so it was a long time ago when I named him. But he's not, you know, he's Michael. Um, I just saw Diana Ross. I'd have to put her on this list because I saw her live this year, and forty years after I saw her in the rain the last time, and inc like incredible, incredible, just legendary. So that would be three. This is so hard. Oh, I gotta pick starts, somebody in hip hop. Starts with, starts with a B. I mean, we talked about it. She's before. still going, so it's hard to say all time. You know, I mean, I guess Mariah Carey's still going too, but mm -hmm. yes, yeah, Beyonce they goes. They don't have to be dead. Beyonce has. She has to go on the all time list because, in terms of performance, also, I mean, it's the full artistry of it all. I, I mean, like I, the thing that I love about Beyonce and I. I was somebody who would love Destiny Child, but then it kind of went through a moment where I was like, I'm mad they broke up and I'm a little upset. Um, but then when she had her self-titled Beyonce album come out, <clears throat> it was when I realized that she really had something to say. Mm -hmm. Before that, 
you know, she she made good songs, but it wasn't really until her she was like in charge of her management herself and her own mm -hmm. image and everything that she was able to to say something. And I was like, she's saying something. I love I love how she's able to utilize her art to like express, you know, similar things to what I express, just in a different a different way and through a different medium mm -hmm. and mechanism. All right, so that's four. You got one more. No, what's the last one? This is hard. Beebs. No, I would actually. <laughs> I would put Donny Hathaway on my list. Very good. Because that's a great. Choice. I find that I go to Donny my Donny Hathaway playlist when I need like my soul soothed a little. Um, it's just there's something about the tone of mm -hmm. Donny Hathaway's voice that soothes my soul. So great, I'd have to put him there too. Mm -hmm. Well, that's a great list. This was a great chat. I hope you'll come back. Yes. And thank you for coming on today. Thank you for having me. It was such a fun conversation. All righty. Take care. Thank you. Bye. This episode of The Back Room was edited and produced by me, Andy Ostroy. It was co-edited and co-produced by Maddie Rosenberg and co-produced by Jen Hamoud. Our theme song was composed by Andrew Hollander and our logo was designed by Cricket Langell. And special thanks to Patricia Wind. Please take a moment to rate and review the podcast and also follow or subscribe. Until next time, keep your eyes on Washington, Hollywood, and your own backyards and have a great week.